Hi there, it's Sam bringing you the fourth episode of Riverpod. Riverpod is the podcast produced by Riverbend Comics, and Riverbend Comics is Sam Schindler and John Darby. Ghost River is a stunning graphic novel written by Lee Francis IV, author of Six Killer, Tales of the Mighty Code Talkers, and illustrated by Wesayat Alvitre of Dear Woman, an anthology, and also Six Killer, and edited by Will Fenton of the Library Company of Philadelphia. The graphic novel is available from Red Panel Books and Comics, and it chronicles the last days of the Conestoga people and brings their story to light, a story of despair and hope, loss and love, ancestors, and the ghosts of history that are always with us. The Conestoga people, of course, were native to what's now Lancaster County, and the last of them were ultimately executed in the jail cell, which is now, ironically enough, the Fulton Theater on Prince Street in downtown Lancaster. Lee Francis IV, originally from the East Coast, now resides in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which he notes is home to the largest urban population of Native people in the United States. Stumbling across Ghost River led me to Red Planet Books and Comics, a self-described indigenous comic book store. Wanting to know more, I connected with the store's founder and author of Ghost River, Lee Francis IV. He was kind enough to find time to sit for a short interview with me for the Nine Panel Podcast. Here he is talking about why he created his company, Native Realities, and why, as an English teacher, he ultimately decided to open a comic book store. I would just like to start off by asking you, um, what makes your store an indigenous comic book store? So I founded Red Planet about uh, two and a half years ago. The idea Mm -hmm. was that we wanted to create uh, a, a location where people could continue to find all of the comics that uh, a lot of native creatives and the people that I've been working with with the Indigenous Comic-Con and the publishing work that we were doing with Native Realities where you could find that all year long. Um, Essentially, we also needed an office because we had a whole bunch of books now that we were publishing and producing and shipping. And, um, but really uh, when we looked at it, when I looked at it, my friend and I looked at it, um, who runs the company with me um, with Red Planet, we thought, why don't we create a space where you know, it's an open house essentially, and we can sell comics for nerds, especially native nerds, but mm-hmm. also showcase <laughs> and highlight the types of comic books that you can't find really anywhere else. Um, they're micro imprints or, you know, somebody's doing a limited run or, you know, they're just selling it at the Indigenous Comic-Con or at their local, you know, you know, like res-based tribal Comic-Con or whatever. So, um, so that's where, you know, we, we stepped in and we decided we were going to create this, uh, this shop and, you know, called Red Planet Books and Comics. And you can find primarily native comic books. We carry probably about 80 to 85% is native content. Uh, we do have, you know, one bookshelf that's, that's comic book oriented, mostly trades. We don't carry a lot of singles. We carry like long reader trades and, and then we do readings and we carry games and we have toys and collectibles and t-shirts and we support local native creatives by, we have like a, a, a wall of art. Um, so we carry, you know, we just carry like art pieces that a lot of the, the creatives that we're working with um, put together. So that's, that's kind of what we've done. That's amazing. I'm going to go ahead and make an assumption and, and you please correct me if I'm wrong uh, and, and, you know, fix my logic here. <clears throat> but my assumption is that the need for this is, has always been there, but the industry like many, many industries in the United States for hundreds of years has shut native people out. 
in the same way that it shut people of color out? I, I'm gonna. I think yes and no. I think it's it's okay. the the it has it has limited the access due to a number of factors. I mean, reservationing native folks, you know, was was is a huge factor, right? Like, you're just limiting access to everything. But the publishing industry also falls along uh, a you know a line of tropes that have that were established 400 years ago about native identity and existence. You know, native folks that do access this point are really you know sort of uh, you know forced into or they're they're asked as part of the the industry not only the publishing industry but the just the you know the marketing side of it um to make things you know we'll say it in quotes more native right so right. to add more right. food feathers and fun and a lot of <laughs> oh, the creatives goodness. and folks that i work with don't want to tell those stories they want to tell maybe traditional stories or they want to tell contemporary stories that just have to do with you know native folks doing you know just being folks right like and then in the afternoon i had some pizza it wasn't like traditional right. pizza right. with like you <laughs> right. know native right. mysticism attached to it it was like i just i just got a pepperoni pizza that's i just i like it you know <laughs> so i think it's 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 twofold is one there's and and it really parallels sort of native identities one is the erasure which is the lockout part and one is you know the misidentification the misinformation the the, the tropey nature right and so i think that's what has really right. happened you know, I, I'll say up until this last decade, I mean, I think there's been a lot of push and a lot of movement. I don't necessarily give the industry credit. Uh, I give a lot of people in various positions a lot of credit, right? The industry is going to industry. It's, it's, you know, it's capitalism 101. It's going to move, you know, where it sees the money. But Correct. what's been happening is that more and more advocates are moving into decision-making positions. And so you're beginning to see people that are recognizing that there may be a profit margin and a value to it, but also some strong-willed individuals in some of these industry and publishing areas where they're saying, we need to be able to bring in you know, this group. Like we just uh, signed a deal with UNM Press. Um, it's the oldest press in the Southwest. Uh, it's been 85 years, I think, 90 years, something like that, that they've been around for to be a imprint. So we're publishing, um, you know, a, a native graphic novel line uh, in collaboration with UNM Press because the editor in chief there is recognizing that there is a need for this, um, and also recognizing that you know you can work with native folks and create something really dynamic that can also appeal to the mass market. I think people are beginning to recognize that you know there there is a need, and and I'm still going to be doing what I do, right? Like I still think that the more that's out there, the merrier. It's not like, oh, look, yeah. you know, we got this deal and, you know, or such and such create another imprint or, you know, Hoot Mifflin just published a native writer. I was like, great, you know what? That still makes it such a small fraction of the book, the amount of books uh, that have come out over, you know, the centuries sure. at this point that are by native writers about native content. You know, my assumption is fueled largely because um, as someone who is, coming to comic books late in life, but also kind of has a sense of A, the erasure, and I guess the stereotypical um, imagery of Native people in American culture, I think a lot of people my age, I'm 44, sort of grew up with this, maybe the tail end of the idea that you could show the stereotypical image of the Native and either as someone who is like a warrior or someone who is especially spiritual or something like that. And it was sort of just the tail end of that kind of uh, particular de 
depiction um, of of sort of taking away the person's humanity and giving them just this kind of here, here's this label that they are and that you can know them by. And I'm just wondering what the if there's any interest at all or what the sort of pushback is or what the response is, if at all, to you know, I'm looking at a lot of comic books from the 1960s and 1970s, and there is no doubt from the DC mm-hmm. and, you know, the major um, publications that there's this, like, very typical, stereotypical image of, of the native and is someone who is quick to anger and an alcoholic and on the dark side of things, unless you turn them around, that same kind of colonialist trope that's existed for 400 years. And I just wonder, a lot of people were kind of introduced to that kind of thing um, first through comics and yep. what's the effort, if any, uh, maybe you don't want to address it, but if you do, like what's the effort oh. there amongst the native creatives to kind of address that trope? Absolutely. We have at the shop, we have a wall of shame, right? So it's on the top shelf. We don't sell them. There's huh. some of the things that I've collected from the thirties, forties and fifties from the platinum age of comics. Uh, a lot of the old West mm-hmm. Westerns, right? So like Kit Carson subtitled Indian fighter, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you have uh, a scalp hunter, uh, fire hair, white daughter of the Sioux, and all of the covers and all of the stories are very much, you know, about the noble savage, or you know, if it's if it's the western and the hero is the cowboy, then it's the red devil, right? The villain, right. the red, the native red villain, right? So when we're mm-hmm. pushing back against these tropes, we it's it's not even necessarily pushing back; it's it's trying to broaden the perspective of native identity from a perspective of native folks, right? Because otherwise, we also get ca- caught. In this, in, in this identity perspective, right? That's been forced upon us. So there's this idea that you come in like, well, all elders mm-hmm. have native wisdom. It's like, listen, we should all, humanity should right. listen to their elders. There's nothing necessarily like even right. more special. It's they have wisdom because they've lived longer, right? So we try to disassociate a right. lot of the things that are specifically like, like native spiritual and native magic and really create stories from my perspective, really creating stories of agency. Like that's a huge thing for me because the other, the, there's, there's sort of three, there's, there's a triangle that goes with this is one, you have this native identity where the native is, you know, either the hero or the villain, but they always have some sort of like supernatural power, right? Like they have, or, you know, mm-hmm. or they, they have like their skill set um, is exoticized for fictional purposes power-based, that skill set, you know, has to, you got to amp it up. Your hero has to have somebody to fight, right? Um, I dig that. I'm a writer. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, you have the the erasure, right? Which is the, the non-existence of Native folks. And then the third part of that triangle is the tragic existence. And then actually comes a little bit later, which is this, which it's the historicization of Native identity in a way that says that Native people ceased to exist. And anybody that's left is left over in this in this um, you know perpetual sorrow machine, um, and right. and when we parallel that with what native you know social workers and advocates have always talked about with historical trauma, there is an element of that. But what pop culture does is reinforces that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So what do you see that pops up constantly and consistently in pop culture, in comic books, in movies? Is dead and dying. Natives, dead and dying Indians. Mm-hmm. And that then gets cycled back into the ways that we begin to perceive ourselves. And, and it moves into this whole sort of nihilistic phase, right? So, so because I, I also worked as a teacher, I'm still an educator, you know, it's, it's what do I want my kids mm. to see, right? So, so for me, really, it's about the agency of Native folks, and that I'm always portraying Native people as living 
right? Even when we talk about something like Ghost River, so when we get into discussing this massacre that happened outside mm -hmm. of Lancaster, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania to start. You, you pronounced um, it correctly. Yes, Lancaster. <laughs> I, I grew up on the East Coast, so and I've got friends oh. from Lancaster. So Oh, wow. And we visited several times, so I actually remembered how to say it. But, you know, one of the things that, that we were very clear about as the project, you know, as, as we were working on the project and my writing is that the last image, I don't want an image of, so what is it, you know, two days ago, the tw or yesterday, the 29th, uh, you know, was the, 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 it's the day that the Wounded Knee Massacre happened, right? So all day in my feed, what I mm -hmm. get is pictures of Chief Bigfoot dead, frozen mm -hmm. in the snow. I don't need to be necessarily reminded mm -hmm. of that. I know non-native folks maybe have forgotten that. That's the erasure part. I would, if I'm going to see that image, I also want to see an image of how Lakota people, Nakota, Dakota people have continued to thrive even after that massacre, even after what happened to them. They have started language programs. They are, you know, they are, are, are protecting our water supply, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at Standing Rock, like, so these mm -hmm. types of things. So for me, you know, the big efforts in the pushback is really to try and show, as I named the company, Native Realities. Like, what is it like? I don't necessarily want to see food, feathers, and fun, but feathers are a part of what we do. Food is a part of what we do, but it's the fetishization and, and essentialization, the distilling of the indigenous and native identity into just these recognizable features. That's what I push against. And that's what a lot of my colleagues push against too. From a native perspective and a non-native perspective, um, what, how do people respond to, to what you're doing? Positive. I, I have not, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, I like to call them like chaos mongers, right? So these folks that are just there to, you know, set fires and pick fights. Man, we get right. that. Like everybody gets that. It's the digital age, right? Like somebody's just like, oh, look, it's a whole bunch of you know, drunken Indians or, oh, look, you know, it's just uh, reverse racism. And I was like, how so? I'm just telling a native story. Right. Like, I'm not taking a story away from somebody else. Like, I'm just telling the story. So the yeah. response has been wonderfully positive for all of the publications that we've put out. Um, you know, the fact that all of our publications are still, since we started, are still in press, you know, and they keep coming in. You know, uh, nothing has nothing has gone into the backstock or the back cycle. The response that we've gotten from Ghost River alone has been profound. The way that I've always framed all of this is that there's room. I, I tend to be very positive, and this is not to yeah, diminish the work. <laughs> Thanks. Um, this is not to diminish the work of a number of my friends who are trying to call attention to things and who might be a little bit more, we'll say, strident, for lack of a better term. But my perspective is there's always room for more stories. Um, it is stories are not a zero sum game simply because I publish a story about Ghost River, you know, and I come from a very distinct and particular perspective around how we're going to describe Native folks. It doesn't take away any other story. It doesn't take away Ben Franklin's story, you know, for a whole heaven's sake, he's been written about forever. So it's not like we're not talking about Ben Franklin. He's already sure. had his, his story. There's room for other stories. And so that's the big perspective. And I think that's what the response to people is, or the, the response from, we'll say folks, not, you know, non-native folks that read this stuff are just like, oh, I never knew, or, oh, this is really exciting, or, yeah, this is, you know, this is well, this is needed, right? And then mm -hmm. and native folks are just like, man, I've been waiting because I'd like to see myself represented. You know, the majority of responses have been overwhelming. I love it, like, when kiddos come into the shop and they'll walk it like a parent sure. buy them a comic book. You know, and the kid will come back and be like, you know, all I can hope for is down the line. The kid's like, and I went to this one 
you know, mystical shop. I don't even know if it exists anymore. You know, who knows if we're going to be around in 25 years, right? You know, <laughs> wh whatever we merge into. Or, um, but like, you know, it's like I went to the shop when I was a young boy and I found this comic. It was the first time I had seen a comic that looked like me, right? Like that's, that's the mythology. Uh, and I've heard some, I, you know, I've heard kind of responses like that, right? Like kiddos, you know, are just like, cool comic. Thanks. Thanks, old man. The response from like parents and community members has been just, has, has been supportive and positive and, you know, the, the, hey, keep going. This is really important work. That's fantastic. So that actually dovetails really nice with my next question, which was when you were growing up, what did you read and how did it influence you? I, so my family, I mean, my dad, uh, you know, was a native studies professor uh, and a writer. I came from a, a long literary background, but he was a huge science fiction fan. So like science fiction, actually, the, the two things that filled ourselves were science fiction and fantasy and uh, theater uh, drama. Um, my dad read so much fantasy and science fiction. At a certain point, he had to, uh, he couldn't tell whether he had read the book by the cover because they'd come out with second editions and they changed the covers and all this rest of this stuff. He'd have to go inside and look at the copyright date. And he, if it would have been any time between like 1975 and, you know, 1993, he's like already read it, you know? <laughs> so who are his like, favorites? Uh, he, you know, 2001, Arthur C. Clarke, Dune, obviously, you know, that kind of series. It was great as I uh, got to them later on in life or as I started growing up and, and you know, moved into sort of that intellectual range was being, being able to have the conversations with him about those books, you know, became really, was really exciting for me. Yeah, um, I'm sure he, he loved it too. You know, the first too. time we were able to talk about Dune and how awesome that was, right? You yeah. know, as a classic of, of sci fantasy space operatic amazingness, right? <laughs> like however you want to. Yeah categorize it you know it's it was it was wonderful to be able to chat with him about that and 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 the first time he read it and comic books also came really easy to me as well because my because he didn't believe in that there was a stigma with reading comics were never like off the table um you know he he right. money wise yeah like i didn't have a giant collection but you know if we saw something at the spinner rack or i was like oh can i get this you know and it's what 25 cents at the time or 50 cents at the time he's like cool and I'd be able to go up and, and buy a comic. So I think the earliest ones I read, I, I, I fell in love with Iron Man because I've always been in technology. There's that, that science fiction part. I also really enjoyed Thor when I was uh, uh -huh. young. So I was, I was definitely a Marvel kid. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed Thor because I, um, I got really into like Norse mythology for a while. And so that, uh -huh. you know, that, that appealed to me, you know, so I was just like, oh, and there's a comic book with Thor. And so I like memorized the characters and the brothers three and, and then, you know, Odin and the whole thing behind him. And then when they fought the, uh, the, the, uh, oh, the Greek gods, you know, with Zeus and Hercules and mm -hmm. like, I love that. So that was a big yeah. thing for me. Yeah. And so I, I kind of fall and then, you know, and then I fell into X-Men and. When, when you, when you read these books, whether they're the comic books or the, the sci-fi, I mean, we're having the conversation with your father yet about. Uh, native identity and um, those kinds of things? And were you looking for yourself in these texts at the time or you're not, not there yet? And yeah, not as much. I mean, it's not that I wasn't aware of it, you know, but we weren't really like digging into the lit crit, right? Like I wasn't being all like, hmm, I wonder why there's no, you know, there's no native representation in Iron Man. However, I will <laughs> say that when native folks showed up and when they emerged, it was very exciting for me. So I remember mm -hmm. really, you know, X-Men, you know, and seeing Forge, right? Mm -hmm. um, for all of the sort of vagueness that Forge's identity had. And, you know, and I, and I loved it until they started building out a story and it became very like native mysticism-y, 
Like prior to that, it was, you know, uh, mm -hmm. it was, it, he was a techno mutant. I was like, even better. Like he's technology. I love that, you know, <laughs> as a native guy, um, you know, alpha flight, right? Like first nations folks. And, you know, there were some mm -hmm. other characters that showed up, but the most, the one that I remember that I very distinctly remember, because I, I remember for, for two reasons. So, you know, obviously the nineties were the cheesecake era and, uh, image put out gen 13, Sarah Rainmaker. Um, she was Apache. Uh, she was, you know, drawn in such a way that a 13 to 15 year old boy would lose his mind before my, my adult critical consciousness began to develop was recognizing that it was so cool that she was native, like outside of all the other mm -hmm. stuff and how hot she was drawn. And I just remember that I thought it was really awesome that she was native. Like I found an identity that I could, I could gravitate towards. I was like, oh, here's a character, you know, that like is awesome, you know, in her own right. And she's got, you know, like you know, exotic and she's hot and all the rest of that. And then of course, <laughs> later on, I'd look back on it. And I was just like, Ooh, it's so cringy at this point, you know, right. doesn't negate that the character isn't that good, but that's definitely not the reason the character <laughs> came about. Right. Like we can point back and say that like, you weren't trying to do this because you wanted to explore native identity. You were doing this because it was exotic, you know, and especially the issues for right. me now that we have with missing murdered indigenous women. Um, that's just a direct mm -hmm. link you know, to the exotification and objectification of Native women. Um, funny enough, something I called to attention in Ghost River, right? Not funny enough. I, I guess that's exactly why I call it uh, to attention in Ghost River is that we can see 400 years ago the ways in which Native women were being represented in popular media. I was like, it hasn't changed, mm -hmm. right? They're represented mm -hmm. as whores, um, untouchables, um, you know, the tiger lily, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're a trophy for, mm -hmm. for colonization. And so that's a big, so that was a big thing for me, right? Like, you know, but, but I use that character as a touchstone because I could recognize in that age, how, how drawn to the character I was because of the identity. And then also as I mature, recognizing all of the tropes and all of the issues with that particular character as well. You personally, how did you wind up on the career path that you wound up on? I, well, I started teaching just because, um, you know, I, I, being a writer, it was a way that I could get, you know, get into uh, classrooms and it was a way to have a gig, right? Like I could get, I could get work yeah. and then, you know, have the opportunity. My dad had set up some work out at Laguna Pueblo, which is where my family is from, which is where my dad's from, um, to work at the high school, working on, on history and, and culture and some language pieces for the high school out there. So I sort of just kind of like fell into it. My dad was like, I need someone out here to do this. And I was like, all right, I'll come on out. Uh, you know, so I started, that was kind of how I started like majorly in the classroom. And then about five years ago, I was like, well, I'm gonna go back and get my PhD. And so I was like, to make the joke now, people, I was like, yeah, I got my PhD in education. And people are like, oh, that's really great. So what are you doing right now? You're working with the school. You, you found and stuff. And I was like, no, nah, I, I opened a comic shop. I love watching the, the look on people. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, what? The cognitive dissonance is strong, right? It's, it's hilarious. Right. Um, but it's still, in my mind, it's still working in the field of education. I'm still working right. and I still do keynotes and I do a lot of talks and I work with students on developing and creating web comics or creating a comic page or doing science fiction or genre writing. Like I've never really stopped teaching. I just, there's, there's media gaps that I look at where native folks are not represented um, you know, that I am looking to fill. Like, I'm like, we need more, we need more native comics here. Oh, and we need more native mysteries over here. Oh, and we need more native sci-fi and indigenous futurisms over here. And, you know, and we need a little more native fantasy over here. Oh, and, and we need native drama and theater over there, right? 
So like, I'm always kind of looking for that. But from the business and industry perspective, I also recognize that if this stuff isn't selling, then people aren't going to keep supporting it and vice versa, right? right? It becomes this sort of like catch 22, you know, we need people to right. support it, but if it's not coming out, people aren't going to support it or their, their attention wanes. And mm-hmm. so I say, well, in my position that I can be in, I'm going to try and either, I'm going to try and A, publish and B, um, distribute so that the work gets out there because the more the work gets out there, the more native creatives are able to do to continue the work, the more work they're able to get back into the field, the more that that gets, you know, supported and picked up, you know, because of this erasure issue, it's like, oh, wait, there's more native books to be able to buy. Yeah, exactly. There is more native content, right? So let's go buy it. You buy it here and we can just continue this, this, this cycle. So, you know, that's, I, I came, I came by this work really honestly, you know, and I'm still trying to educate. I'm just doing it in a way where I get to you know, sit out in front of a comic shop and nerd out on my regular work days. Tell me just quickly about um, the role that Albuquerque plays um, and how sort of involved in the local community Red Planet is. And um, if you think that like sort of you could do this in another city or if or if Albuquerque is ne- it's necessary to do it in Albuquerque. I, so, I mean, Albuquerque is, is the major metropolitan of where my community is from out at Laguna Pueblo. It's about 45 miles west of, of Laguna is 45 miles west of Albuquerque. Um, that's where I've done a bunch of my work. That's where, you know, my, I have a, a bunch of deep roots and connections naturally built. And I think that that's helped us in many ways to be able to launch Red Planet and do the work that we do. Um, you know, it's got a high concentration. It's one of the highest concentration of urban natives per capita, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think ten. It's between eight and ten percent of the population is native in the city. Um, that that population is is educated. Um, so it's non-educated, right? Like, I guess there's this great mix. So in that sense, it's this great um, g- combination of natives and native identity. And there's you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of pueblos and Navajos and Apaches. You know, but we get like a whole bunch of like, there's a, there's like the fourth largest group, I think is Cherokee in New Mexico or in Albuquerque. Right. And then, and then Lakota and, you know, like so we get these, this wonderful mix of all these people that came down to Albuquerque. Um, <clears throat> so I think that has been, you know, demographically that's, that's where it's at. But I also think that because there's such awareness of the native community there, that there's a lot of folks that continue to look for the types of media and resources that we can offer and provide within their schools, their classrooms, um, and the allies that we have that that want to want to see this thrive because they they know that it's important um, in terms of you know creating strong identities. I think that that's you know our community outreach has has really been around having a space and creating a space that's open. We don't rent the space if you want to use our space you know, but like buy stuff, right? Like that's, I, I'm there to support native creatives. I'm not just here to keep the doors open. I'm here to make sure that, that, that stuff gets out into people's hands. So buy things, buy things, by native, by native folks, buy the painting on the wall, buy the comic books that we have up here, you know, support, you know, support native creatives as, as you can. My whole thing is, is trying to create something really neat and exciting at our shop. Um, to make it, you know, this, this, this fun space that people want to come and hang out at. That's the future of what we need to see with, um, with bookstores, uh, you know, and, and we are part bookstore, part comic shop, um, and, and, and our retail spaces, like what's the value added because hands down Mm -hmm. the internet's got us beat, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon make 
make things easy for us as consumers, but difficult for us as merchants. So, you know, when I think about our business strategy and what we're trying to do, it is about community. It is about creating that solid base of people that are going to come back and spend their money week after week because we're offering not only the, the, the product, but also the, the service, if you will, the services mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that make, you know, that make our, that, that make the space what it is. What are some titles out there now that people should go and read that for whatever reason um, appeal to you? Um, they could, it could be just things that you're interested in just in general, or it could be things directly related to native creative uh, comic book work. Um, and the second mm -hmm. part of the question is, what are you reading right now? Uh, and so just take that whatever order you want to. Yeah, absolutely. What am I reading right now? I'm reading Black Panther Red Wolf. Uh, that has been really exciting for me. So I've, I'm trying to get back into doing a little bit more uh, uh, reading for, for pleasure, right? Because that I think is something we all are, are lacking in in some ways. Oh, I just grabbed from the shop. We have the Monstrous Anthology. So uh -huh. I've really been looking forward to reading all of that. There's a really great one that I think everybody should read. It is native. Um, uh, Jake Lowry uh, is the author of it. It's called Soldiers Unknown. And it's about okay. uh, California natives in World War One. Amazing art. Just got that one. Um, I got to read it before, but I'm really I'm going to sit back down and read it again because I have I saw I read it digitally and I haven't had the chance to really just like like hold that you know hold that that novel in I, hand, I, which is always such I a I can't great... do it. I can't I can't read digitally. I need to have I, it. In I, my hand. You know, I do it when I got a review, but I don't like to do it otherwise. Like if I'm reading for pleasure, it's got to be in the hands, right? So absolutely, absolutely. Um, Let's see. Uh, I, listen, I mean, I will toot my own horn, but I think Ghost River. So Ghost River, uh, the, f uh, the Fall and Rise of the Conestoga, uh, chronicles the 1763 massacre of the Conestoga people, right? The, the last of their name, um, although their, their kin uh, and, and their, their ancestors, their offspring, you know, um, survived. They had migrated. The, it was the last of the Conestoga the Conestoga people and the Conestoga name ended shortly after Christmas, um, uh, December of 1763, where a group of frontiersmen um, who had been uh, pretty much stirred up into violence, uh, rather, uh, you know, and I, and I do have to say this without mincing words, I think, uh, you know, in a way that's very cowardly, rather than fighting um, uh, face to face uh, and fighting uh, their attackers, uh, turned inland because uh, they were on the uh, western frontier in Pennsylvania at the time, and uh, turned mm -hmm. inland, rode into uh, Conestoga outside of uh, Lancaster, and slaughtered. Uh, started by slaughtering uh, six unarmed, poor, impoverished Native folks, uh, and then finished the job two weeks later uh, when the Native, the Conestoga people, had been taken into the workhouse in Lancaster for their own safety, quote unquote, um, and the. Uh, their gatekeeper stepped aside and allowed them, the rest of them, to be murdered. Um, so what we wanted to do on the spot, uh, which is now, I believe, the Fulton Theater. It is the Fulton Theater. That is correct. Uh, this the the project began with a, a gentleman by the name of Will Fenton, uh, works at the library company. Uh, great guy. Kid reached out to me. Says I've got this idea. He had been working on a project as part of his studies and his scholarly research called Digital Paxton. And he says, you know what, we, we might want to do something with this. And I, I want to bring the native voice into this. And I don't want to do this as a non-native. So he mm -hmm. reached out to me because, you know, we're still the largest, also the largest publisher of native comics uh, currently, um, specifically and exclusively. 
And, uh, mm-hmm. and so he reached out to me, he reached out to the incredible illustrator with Shoya Alvitre. Um, she is a uh, native Californian Tongva out of uh, Southern California. And um, she and I had already collaborated on a project. So it was really great to come back and work with her again. And, uh, and we started this project about two years ago. And uh, with, with uh, I think the, the resources came from the Pew Arts and Heritage um, Foundation. They, mm-hmm. they were incredibly generous in the resources that they provided. Um, around this very important work and around this sort of, you know, they were very much risk, kind of risk taking, right? Like this idea that you would be able to tell this history, you know, uh, in a comic book format or a graphic novel format, how interesting. And, uh, and so they, they, you know, they took a risk and, and I think it absolutely paid off. Uh, I think the work is immaculate and it tells the story from the native perspective, but also really blends in sort of like indigenous philosophy, philosophy. So it takes place in like multiple time frames, both the past, the present and the future. Uh, you know, it takes place, it brings in the, the you know, some of the folks out there um, uh, in Lancaster, the native folks that are there out of uh, Circle Legacy, which is the native group that, that's there in Lancaster, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and, and we were able to visit them. And so we put them in the book and we put one of our advisors in the book and, and, and telling the story of native existence and native identity through the ages while focusing on this lens of what, of this tragedy, of this massacre, of this act of violence. And, and how do we continue to reconcile that? And how do we show agency of native folks that, well, you know, I always kind of say, I was like, you tried, but we're still here. <laughs> so right now we have been working on uh, a, uh, a native baseball anthology. Uh, mm. graphic anthology. So that's some of the stories that haven't been told. So pretty excited about that one. Um, mm. And then there's, uh, you know, so that's one of the ones that I'm working on the writing for. Uh, and then trying to get the rest of uh, my comic book, which is Six Killer. Um, so it's Alice in Wonderland meets Kill Bill set in Cherokee country. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the tale of, of a young woman seeking revenge for the murder of her sister. And uh, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to get the next issues done of that, which is always interesting. Um, we've been working with uh, the National Museum of the American Indian on telling some stories around um, New York natives. So that I think is going to that mm-hmm. exhibit's going to be opening up here in the spring. So you know, there's a lot of um, just a lot of stuff going on, but it's really it's all really exciting. Yes. And the most the more we can do to get uh, to 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 continue to tell a, a, a another aspect another facet of the story that's that's what i got to do